the first question kind of thing, which is what's next. Disinflation may be deflation. Where's your dry powder if you actually did have a, a big war tomorrow with China invading Taiwan? Are you going to take it up to 200%? Uh, and by the way, 130%, who's at that lunch table? It's Lebanon, Greece, and Italy. I mean, is that, is that the, the group you want to be having lunch with you know, in, in the cafeteria? I mean, the food would be good. So you're saying to diversify, which is obviously, you, you've said gold, you've said cash, particularly in the case of deflation, and you're saying stocks and options. Now, there's a lot of people who would look at things like Bitcoin and would look at digital currencies. Look at Jim's face. <laughs> <laughs> it's a kind of thought control because I, using inference, I can tell by what you're reading, what you're buying, what you're attending, et cetera, kind of what you're thinking. Uh, combine that with uh, artificial intelligence and GPT technology, and now you got a target on your back and expect a knock on the door from the FBI goon squads. Well, you got to get rid of cash and crypto, hurt everybody into the digital world, and then you can whack them politically, and that's what's going on. People are more obedient than I would have expected, and so if those two things are true, then you run the you run the climate change playbook and you, uh, you get world control. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry on the Road from the USA. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today has been on the show about 57 times. <laughs> At this point, he could be the chief economic correspondent for Trigonometry. Jim Rickers, welcome back. Thank you, Constantin. Great to be with you. You are, of course, uh, you're of course, an author, and we're going to talk about your latest book and everything else. Uh, as we were joking before we started, you're always full of optimism and cheer. Your latest book is called Sold Out, How Broken Supply Chains, Surging Inflation, and Political Instability Will Sink the Global Economy. Mm -hmm. It's a good news. Yep. It's all good. Uh, and you are known, at least to us, as the author of a number of books which predict some pretty bad things. Sure. And, uh, you know, a few of the times you've been on the show during the pandemic, I remember we had you and our good friend Pippa Malmgren on the show, mm -hmm. and you both said, inflation is coming. Right. Inflation is here. What's coming now? Well, uh, we're actually heading into something, uh, disinflation definitely, but maybe even deflation is, is the opposite, at least for the time being. Inflation is the end game. It has to be because there's no way uh, out from under the debt. But right now, and people are still worried about inflation. Prices are still going up. I, I put gas in my car just like everyone else. So I'm well aware of it, eggs, bacon, you know, et cetera. But inflation has been coming down steadily since uh, June of, uh, of 2022. So uh, about seven months in a row, eight months in a row, um, it you know, peaked then. Uh, we all know what gas prices were doing and so forth. But the reason is, is kind of interesting, and it does go to the, the book and the supply chain disruption. Inflation, uh, nominally, prices are going up. Okay, so that's inflation. But it can come from two sources that are opposite. One is from uh, supply side shock, supply chain disruption. That's what the book is about. We saw that in 1973 with the Arab oil embargo over the... Arab-Israeli war at the time, the price of oil quadrupled, et cetera. That was a supply shock. The thing about supply-side inflation is it's self-negating. It burns itself out. So, you know, the old uh, saying, and it's true, the, the cure for high oil prices is high oil prices. In other words, when things get too expensive because of supply disruption, people can't afford them, businesses close, you get layoffs, you go into recession, and prices come down pretty quickly after that. The other source of inflation is from the demand side. And this is a completely different dynamic. We saw this in the late 70s, where um, uh, you know, prices are going up, but people have some bargaining power. So unions are on strike. They're getting higher wages. Uh, I, mean, I worked at Citibank in the, in the late 70s, early 80s. They used to give us raises without asking. They just say, here, here's another $20,000, because they knew that the cost of living was going up. We would all change jobs if they didn't pay us more. So, but that, uh, that feeds on itself. So the supply side disruption tends to snuff itself out. The demand side inflation tends to feed on itself, it gets out of control. And then we saw what Paul Walker did with interest rates in 1980, 1981, where he took it to 20%. He, he caused a recession in terms of tight monetary policy to snuff out the inflation. But otherwise, if you don't do that, that just runs away. Now, this, the inflation we saw in 2022, late 2021, 2022, it was real. It wasn't transitory the way Jay Powell said. Um, and, you know, the price of gasoline doubled, more than doubled, uh, and all the other complaints you hear, uh, you know, the filling up your Ford F-150 uh, pickup truck went from uh, $70 to $140, which 
For a lot of people, that meant they couldn't eat or couldn't you know, go out. It was killing demand in you know, entertainment, shopping, uh, retail, uh, a lot of other things, which again, tends to snuff it out. So that has happened to, to a great extent. Starting in June uh, 2022, that was the peak and this inflation is becoming down. Now, it's still too high. The Fed's not done. Uh, we're gonna see um, at least one more interest rate hike. Um, maybe, but they're gonna leave one more on the table. We'll see what happens in June. I'm not forecasting June, but I would not rule out another interest rate hike in June after the May hike. So, um, because they, and they, Jay Powell's like thinking, how many times do I have to say this? He's given nine speeches since August 2022, August 26th at the Jackson Hole, then September FOMC meeting, uh, November FOMC meeting, um, the end of November, a speech at the Brookings Institution, December FOMC, congressional testimony, you know, et cetera. And every time he said the same thing. Inflation is job one. We, uh, you know, we, we've got to get unemployment up, believe it or not. They, they, you know, we're going to have a recession and unemployment's going to go up. Sorry about that. But, <laughs> we, but we've got to get inflation under control. And until we do, and what's under control mean? Well, it's 2%. That's their goal. Well, it's, it's come down from 9 to 5. Nice job. But 5 is still a far cry from 2, and it gets harder as you go along. Um, and they're searching for what they call the terminal rate. So the terminal rate, no one knows what the number is. Uh, I don't know, because Jay Powell doesn't know. But, um, but the terminal rate, by definition, is it's a rate that's high enough that it brings inflation down on its own without further rate hikes. Um, because so far, they've been raising rates, and inflation's been coming down. Okay, that makes sense. And they can keep raising rates, and it'll come down more. But is there a level where you know, we're, up, we're there, now we can sit tight, the famous pause, and inflation will keep coming down? Mm -hmm. Now, you don't know because it's not a controlled experiment. You can't like, do it twice. But they're getting close. So whether it's five and a quarter, five and a half remains to be seen. But that's the terminal rate. But then Wall Street came up with this narrative. Oh, yeah, well, as soon as they're done hiking rates, they're going to cut them. Um, that, this is the famous pivot we've been hearing about for uh, over a year uh, at this point. No, as far as they're concerned, forget rate cuts in 2023. Maybe mid-2024, we'll get back to you on that. Um, but there's one wild card in the deck, which is... That's the Fed's plan. So I just gave you the Fed's game plan. It's not, you know, you don't need a crystal ball. They tell you what they're going to do. All you have to do is listen, although a lot of people don't. Wall Street makes up their own version of that. Uh, but, uh, but the idea of rate cuts following hitting the terminal rate is, well, rate cuts go down, so dividends are higher, so buy stocks. You know, Wall Street is always buy stocks. That's, the, that's always the punchline. But they might cut rates late in the year, not because it's their plan, not because they want to, but we could be in a very severe recession. Uh, and that, at which point, because the Fed's always late, to, you know, they're, they're always following the market, they never lead the market. Mm -hmm. If they've already raised, let's say they may already be at the terminal rate and not know it. Um, and so if they keep raising, which I expect they will, uh, they may throw this economy into a very severe re recession, at which point they may have to cut rates, not because it's in the playbook, but because you know unemployment goes up to 7%. And, uh, but that gets back to the, the, the first question, Constantine, which is what's next? Disinflation may be deflation. And you mentioned, however, that despite that, and obviously we'll talk about the short term, and remember, Jim, most of our audience are not financial experts, but so far what they've heard from you is it's a very unstable situation. Correct. It's going to go fluctuate wildly from one end to the other. Right. We're probably going to have a recession uh, and inflation is coming down now, but the interest rates are probably going to stay quite high. Correct. Right. So that's the, the, the consumer takeaway from what you've said. But the longer term thing, and this is a recurring theme of our discussions, you said right at the beginning of your answer, which is inflation is the only solution to the problems that we've built up. Sure. Which is we have these gigantic debts, both the US and the UK, there's just no other way to pay off, particularly given the gridlock of our political system where we can't ever seem to cut spending because cutting spending, quote-unquote, kills people. Right. Well, we actually had a pretty good track record of cutting spending for the first 220 years. Right. Uh, so from, from, you know, Alexander Hamilton invented the government bond market, and the debate at the time was the United States is formed, we have a constitution, George Washington is sworn in, and, but we had all these revolutionary war debts where we issued all these IOUs to fight the Revolutionary War. And they couldn't be paid. So the question is, what do we do with the Revolutionary War debt? So the Congress naturally said, screw them. We're not, we're not paying that. That was a different country. We're that, now the United States of America. It's the American way. Um, but Alexander Hamilton said, no, here's what you do. Borrow more money, pay off the debts. You'll have good credit. 
And when the new money comes due, you can borrow more and pay that off and just keep going. In other words, your credit is more valuable than uh, you know, writing off a, a bunch of uh, uh, creditors at, at one time because you ruin your credit. Mm -hmm. So he said, borrow more and establish your credit and then just keep it going. And that was the creation of the, the government bond market and it's been going strong for, for 230 years. But I studied this and um, the pattern was very consistent. The United States would run up the debt to fight a war, every war, War of 1812, um, obviously the Civil War, or so Mexican-American War, Civil War, Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II. Every time we ran up the debt, we fought, we paid the war, uh, paid for the war, won, and then after the war, we took the debt back down again. So it was never, it never went straight up. It's not a straight line from George Washington to uh, Joe Biden. It's a, it's a sideway up and down and up and down. We did a very good job of paying off the debt in times of peace. So you'd have dry powder in effect, so you could run up the debt in wartime. Um, and the classic- So it's a tool. It's a tool it's you use to deal with the challenges of the moment. But then the most important thing is you put the tool back in the box and you polish it and you get Correct. it ready for the next time. Sharpen up, sharpen it up and get it ready for the yeah. next time. And that's why uh, there's so much confusion about John Maynard Keynes. I believe Keynes was one, maybe the best or second or third best after Irving Fisher maybe, economist of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. But Keynesianism is bankrupt. Neo-Keynesianism was really bastardized by Paul Samuelson at MIT after the war, Cain, uh, World War II. Keynes died in, I think, 1946. Um, so Paul Samuelson and others, the, the big brains at MIT, they had spent World War II as um, logistics experts doing linear programming, this is before computers. Uh, they had some machines, but, you know, but, you know we're gonna have D-Day, okay, where are the supplies coming from? Where's the, where's the fuel coming from? Where's the ammunition coming from? Uh, what's the best way to deploy bombers, et cetera? And they solved all those problems. So then in peace, they said, well, we can take all those wonderful tools we developed to win World War II mm -hmm. and apply them to economics, and we'll start with Keynes, but we'll actually turn it into a machine we can fine tune the economy. I remember the phrase in the 60s, uh, no more recessions, they used to say, because mm -hmm. we can fine tune the economy. That was all before it ran off the rails in the 1970s. I don't blame Keynes for that, because he, he was not an ideologue. He was a pragmatist. He believed in doing whatever worked. And in a depression, in a liquidity trap, when people were hoarding money, hoarding gold, not spending it, he said, well, if people won't spend, the government can and get the economy moving. But then he was the first one to say, yeah, once you get there, pay it back and then you'll let the economy run on its own. Same idea. So the classic uh, case, end of World War II, the US debt to GDP ratio, by the way, Constantine, um, people said we have a big debt. You know, if you throw out, you know, 25 trillion, 31 trillion, these no are- No one big understands numbers. this. Well, they don't, but I don't care. And here's what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. The number doesn't mean anything. What you have to calculate is the debt to GDP ratio. What is your payment ability? So mm -hmm. I say, if I, if I owe, you know, $50,000 on a MasterCard and I'm making $20,000 a year, I'm probably going broke. If I owe 50,000 and I'm making half a million a year, I can write a check. So in other words, the, the debt can only be considered dangerous or not in relation to the income. So you, look, you wanna look at the debt to GDP mm -hmm. ratio. In 1945, the US debt to GDP ratio was 120% all time high. What does that mean, Jim? Well, it means that it's extremely high and you have to pay it off, but my point is we won the war mm -hmm. and we were a global hegemon. We, I remember being in elementary school, like US produces half, half the cars, oh, three quarters of the cars in the world, half the iron, like, hey, we got the whole thing. We won the war. But then what happened next was even more interesting. Between 1945 and 1980, that debt to GDP ratio went down from 120% to 30%, which is completely manageable. And it was bipartisan. You had Democrats like Harry Truman, JFK, and Lyndon Johnson, Jimmy Carter, Republicans like Eisenhower, Nixon, and Ford. It was not a partisan issue. Everybody thought it was a good idea. And then, so along comes Reagan. He's handed a debt to GDP ratio of 30%. Now Reagan has this reputation as you know, tight, tough fist, you know, a tight-fisted conservative. No, he ran it back up again to fifty percent. But we won the Cold War. We won another war. We, you know, in nineteen eighty-nine, the Berlin Wall comes down. Nineteen ninety-one, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And I know that was George H. W. Bush, but Reagan laid the groundwork with Star Wars and a lot else. So um, it's okay. He ran it up again, but we won the Cold War, which I never thought would end. I thought I'd, you know, next fifty years be talking about the Cold War. So, but then you're supposed to take it down again. And that didn't happen under George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton. They didn't run it up, but they didn't take it down. It stayed around 50, 60%. And even under George W. Bush with Iraq and everything else, 
It didn't go much above that. But where it exploded was Obama and Trump uh, and, and Biden. So Obama was handed about 105% between uh, Obama and Trump. They took it up to 131%, which is where it is now, and, and Biden as well. So they broke the mold, that 220-year mold I just described. Um, there were no, <coughs> pardon me, no existential wars. Yeah, we were, we're in a kind of a long drawn-out thing in Afghanistan, but it wasn't nearly as costly as the other things we're talking about. Uh, the U.S. didn't win anything, by the way. But they ran it up to 130%. Now, that's, first of all, the highest of all time. Secondly, it broke the rule that you should pay it down in times of peace. Third, uh, where's your dry powder if you actually did have a, a big war tomorrow with China invading Taiwan? Are you going to take it up to 200%? Uh, and by the way, 130%, who's at that lunch table? It's Lebanon, Greece, and Italy. I mean, is that, is that the, the group you want to be having lunch with you know, in, in the cafeteria? I mean, the food would be good. Yeah. The, food, the, food, the Italian food. <laughs> There'd be no one to pay well, for actually, it, Well, actually, Greek food is pretty good, but uh, yeah, maybe we could pay for it in Lira. Uh, but, uh, but, that's, but that's where we are. So this is uh, unprecedented. It's never been this high. It breaks the pattern of running it up in war and paying it down in peace. No one roots for war, but they happen. Um, and, uh, and it's worse than that because of modern monetary theory. And here's where my friend Stephanie Kelton comes in. She's a professor at State University of New York, uh, Stony Brook uh, campus. Uh, she's the big brain of MMT. And she was uh, economic advisor to Bernie Sanders when he was on the Senate Budget Committee and in both of his campaigns, 2016, 2020. Um, again, her book, The Deficit Myth, I highly recommend it. I disagree with every word. But uh, if you want to win the debate or you want to understand what's going on, you, you have to read her book. And I never put words in anyone's mouth. These are her words. She says, what's the problem? You, the Fed can print unlimited amounts of money, which is true. The Treasury can uh, issue unlimited amounts of debt. Not quite true. You have to raise the debt ceiling, but it always has been raised, so that's never acted as a constraint. Um, she says, yeah, so right from her book, she said, the only reason we have a bond market is a favor to investors, to give them a place to put their money. We don't actually need to borrow any money. All you have to do, you want to buy 10 F-35 jets, give the Fed wire instructions to Lockheed, just wire them the money. What, what, what's this business of you know, issuing debt and having underwriters and primary dealers and Treasury gets the money, they deposit the Fed and they, they pay Lockheed. Just cut out all the middlemen, just have the Fed wire the money directly to Lockheed. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so, and we don't even need a tax system. We, we have it because we're trying to engineer income equality, but we don't actually need taxes or bonds because we can just print the money and send it wherever we want. What's the problem? Well, when you frame it that way, you actually start out agreeing with her. I mean, I'm, I'm a lawyer. I dealt with the Fed for decades. I was <laughs> once physically threatened by a Fed official. They started to come across the table at me, but that was back in the day where they were a lot tougher than they are today. <laughs> it's a, an Irish guy, very well known. Um, but, uh, but I did what he said. Uh, so, um, but, but the point is the Fed actually can print unlimited amounts of money. That is the law. Uh, the Treasury can issue all the debt at once subject to you know, debt ceiling increases. That's the law. And you can send the wires. Uh, so, so why not? So this is one of these issues where I knew that it wasn't right. I knew this was really bad advice. I knew that modern monetary theory will fail. But uh, I didn't immediately know how to rebut those points because she's right. Um, so I said, well, the failure must lie elsewhere. It must be not that you can't print the money or you can't send the money to Lockheed. It, it, there must be something else. And here's where I arrived at. I was trying to crack the code on Bitcoin. That took 10 years also. Um, people say, well, Bitcoin's not backed by anything or the dollar's not backed by anything or the euro's not backed by anything. And I say, yes, they are. They're all backed by the same thing which is confidence. Right. If I think something's money and you think it's money and I tender it to you for goods and services and you think you're confident you can give it to Francis for goods and services and we have a large enough group, it's money. Right. It can be, when we were kids, we did this with baseball cards and bottle caps. You know? So anything can be money if there's confidence. But confidence is fragile. It's easily lost. And when you lose it, it's very, very difficult to regain. And I've had this debate. I've been in vaults in the Pentagon, you know, we're doing a tabletop financial war game and like 10 people sitting around the table. Here's the Treasury and the CIA and the three-star general and, um, you know, a couple think tank people and we're, we're, we're doing this. And I told the Pentagon, well, the group, but including the Treasury, 
this uh, seven or eight years ago, because we were weaponizing the dollar against Iran. Mm-hmm. Don't get me started in Russia. Well, actually, I'll start myself in Russia. But um, the point is, I said, sanctions work to a point. You're weaponizing the dollar, but you're doing it too much, too frequently, and you're relying on it too much. And what's going to happen is you're going to drive people away from the dollar. You're mm-hmm. going to drive people out of the dollar system because mm-hmm. they're not going to take it anymore. I was, um, well, there's one guy who's sitting one place away from me. There was somebody in between us. Um, he was a very senior treasury official, uh, specifically tasked with uh, managing foreign exchange relationships with, um, with, with Asia, Japan, and China, basically. Uh, but a senior guy, his name was actually David Dollar. Uh, but uh, um, he, he takes both hands, slams them on the table, goes, the dollar is the global reserve currency. It always has been the global reserve currency, and it will always be the global reserve currency. And I said, David, I feel like I'm in Whitehall in 1913 listening to John Bull say, you know, sterling is the global reserve currency, and it always will be. And of course, it was dead by 1944. It started to die as early as November 1914 at the beginning of World War I. So, um, so I've warned them. I've explained it to them. But now we're at the point where that's actually happening. The kinds of things I describe. So it's like you, you, know, you hit the punching bag, you hit it, you hit it, you hit it. At some point, the punching bag gets up and walks away. It's like, I'm not going to stand for this. And the, the key thing, there's always a uh, you know, snowflake that starts the avalanche, as I've described, um, was when we froze the um, reserves of the Central Bank of Russia. I know there's a war on, got it, uh, financial sanctions, yeah, they were probably inevitable. But Russia's not Syria. Uh, it's the uh, largest landmass in the world. It's the largest nuclear arsenal in the world. Um, it's the 12th largest economy in the world. It has the best gold to GDP ratio in the world, uh, which is another metric we can talk about. But if you want to back up your economy with real money, uh, their, their gold to GDP ratio is four times what the United States has. Um, the list of strategic metals, uh, grain exports, uh, oil, of course, one of the three largest fertilizer. producers, fertilizer, yeah. nitrates, etc that they export, and they're only one of only two countries, the other one being France, that will give you a nuclear technology if you want to build a nuclear, not a weapon, but a nuclear power plant. The US is kind of out of that game. So it's not some punk country. Um, and they had over um, uh, $150 billion in US Treasury notes. They've been, they've been getting away from them. And Avira Nebulina, who's the head of the Central Bank of Russia, she's, she's the only central bank in the world who knows her job. Mm-hmm. Um, she very prudently um, has quadrupled the Russian gold reserves since 2009, so 13, uh, 14 years. Uh, she's taken it from 600 tons to close to 3,000 tons. They did it very transparently. They had dealers in London, they had standing orders. They said, we don't want to disrupt the market. By the way, don't try calling up and ordering 400 tons of gold. You'll be, they'll just hang up the phone. But, you know, 10 tons a month, sometimes 30 tons a month. But for over 10 years, it added up to the position we're in today. And guess what? It's physical gold. It's in safe storage near Moscow. You can't, it's not digital. You can't freeze it. You can't seize it. It's, it's, but it's money good. Um, but we um, confiscated or froze their U.S. Treasury securities, because they are digital. There hasn't been a paper Treasury security since 1980. Um, and the ledger is maintained by the uh, uh, Federal Reserve and the Treasury. By the way, keep that in mind when we, if we talk about central bank digital currencies, because you're back to who, who runs the ledger. But for U.S. Treasury securities, that, that um, ledger is digital. It's run in the United States. You know, people, you know, we're in a debt ceiling debate right now. The Congress is debating raising the debt ceiling and uh, if you didn't do anything, you know, the X date when the Treasury actually goes broke and we, we default on the debt. And everyone's all spun up about this. The U.S. defaults on this debt all the time. Uh, and, and people don't seem to notice. When, if you're Russia and you buy Treasury notes and bills in good faith and they're supposed to pay as agreed at maturity and all of a sudden the issuer says, sorry, I'm not paying you. It, if that's not a default, I don't know what is. You know, maybe selective. Maybe I'm just picking on you and not the whole market. But that's the default. 1933, when Roosevelt devalued the dollar by 75% and took gold from uh, $20 an ounce to $35 an ounce, uh, confiscated all the gold, and so paper was paper money was no no longer redeemable into gold. That's a default. I mean, that's a default because Treasury securities at the time used to have a gold equivalent, and uh, FDR just tore it up. So, and then 1977 to 1981. 
inflation was 50%. You know, all my Austrian libertarian friends, you know, they go, well, since 1913, the dollar has lost 95% of its purchasing power, which is true, but so what? I mean, incomes are higher. But there was a five-year period, not 100 years, where the dollar lost 50% of its purchasing power, which meant if you held a, if you held a bond, the real value of your bond was cut in half. That's a default. See, there's just like lots of different ways to default. The U.S. does it all the time. Getting back to your other question, Constantine, about inflation being being the real end game. So anyway, so we pushed Russia, and by the way, Russia's held up very well. Their, econ- their economy is going to outperform the United States in 2023, uh, according to the IMF and others, um, World Bank. Um, they're uh, the ruble is strong. It was for a long time stronger than it was before the war. Uh, you know, so they're, they're you know they're they're feeling the pain. I'm not saying there's no pain at all, but they're they're getting through it brilliantly, and they're going to outperform the, the U.S. this year. But um, but the rest of the world took notice. So let's say you're China or Saudi Arabia or Turkey or Brazil or you know, and these are major countries. Um, they're saying, hey. The U.S. just froze the reserves of the Central Bank of Russia. What if you know Janet Yellen gets out of the wrong side of the bed? And uh, frightening thought, but uh, um, says they don't like me. They don't like my policy. They don't like what I'm doing in Taiwan or um, uh, the, the Kurds or uh, you know women's rights. Whatever, pick a topic. They could do that to me. And so people are like, okay, now we really do have to get out of the dollar. Not as a an economic matter, but as a national security matter from their perspective. So, Jim, we've been talking at the macro level now, but I want to focus in on the ordinary American, the ordinary British person. They're looking at an economy which is lurching, like you said, from one end extreme to the other. They're looking at their savings being depleted. They're looking at prices going through the roof. Mm-hmm. What should they do in order to weather the storm that is coming within the next few months? Well, there is a lot they can do. And I'm going to give you an answer, and everyone rolls their eyes and goes, well, that's obvious. The answer is diversification. Everyone goes, oh, we, we know that, you know, diversification. But they know the term, but they actually don't know what diversification is. And I'll give you an example. I run into people all the time. They go, well, Jim, I'm fully diversified. I have 50 stocks in 10 different sectors, telecommunications, semiconductors, consumer non-durables, metals and mining. And I go, you're not diversified. You may have 50 stocks, but you're in one asset class called stocks or equities. And they're all going to go up together or they're all going to go down together. And the more stressful the condition, the more reason you have to be concerned about it, the higher the correlation. You know, on any given day, some stocks go up and stocks go down. But when you dial the stress meter up, they all tend to move together. So that's, I don't care about your 50 stocks, your 10 sectors, that's not diversified. So what does real diversification look like? Have a sleeve of equities if you want, that's fine. I would say um, I look hard at oil and natural gas, natural resources, agriculture. Again, kind of equities that have hard assets behind them that will do well in inflationary times mm-hmm. or even in recessionary times because you need all those things uh, no matter what. Um, then a slice of real estate. You know, I wouldn't be in commercial real estate, but you know, residential real estate, um, income-producing real estate, farms, etc. That's good. Um, I have a big slug of cash, and people go, "Well, cash doesn't have any yield." Although lately the yields, you, be, you can get two, three percent, you know, on like a CD. Uh, but even in a simple um, savings account, um, you know, it, it is quite low. It's, it's kind of less than one percent. But people don't understand the value of cash in a couple of respects. Number one, in a deflationary environment, we're not there yet, but we could hit that if the recession gets bad enough, cash could be your best performing asset. Mm. It doesn't go up in nominal terms, but it goes up in real terms. Mm. If you have 2% deflation, your cash is worth 2% more uh, in terms of purchasing power. But the, but the real value of cash is optionality. Mm-hmm. And this is not well understood. I, shared an office with Myron Scholes uh, for six years, so I see options under the pillow, <coughs> so to speak. But uh, um, if you're the one with cash, when things, first of all, um, it'll definitely preserve well. So if things are falling all around you, your cash will be what it's worth, unless you're in Silicon Valley Bank, it's a separate issue. But, um, although they got bailed out. Uh, but so it'll preserve wealth, even if it's not a high, <coughs> high performer, it'll do very well in deflation. But the real benefit is, when everything else is falling apart, you're the one who can go shopping. So it's kind of an at-the-money call option on every asset class in the world. You know, everyone's selling everything in a panic. You can bide your time, watch it go down, 
look for a bottom and then say, okay, now I'll, I'll buy these things down 30% or 40% or 50% from where they were. Um, some alternatives, I, um, uh, you know, I have a number of investments in uh, you know, private equity and venture type situations and the yeah, other risky uh, and they're not liquid, uh, but um, some of them will do very well. Some of them have done well, so that's nice. Um, and then a slice of gold. Uh, and I recommend 10% because uh, people, you know, they put words in your mouth. They go, Jim Baker says, sell everything and buy gold. I've never said that. Not a good strategy. But 10%, yeah. First of all, there's your inflation hedge. Um, but also, it's a money hedge, meaning if, going back to what we said earlier about confidence. Uh, see, I, I've said all along that Russia, China, Iran, uh, you know, I don't care who they are. They can't destroy the U.S. dollar, but the U.S. can. We are our own worst enemy. Janet Yellen is the greatest enemy of the dollar because of the way she's throwing sanctions around. She may destroy confidence. Um, and um, the reason, like, hey, if the dollar is so shaky or, you know, there's all this downside by being invested, why don't I go to another reserve currency? There aren't any. This is... Um, this is a key distinction that gets it gets glossed over in the debate. You see people on TV all the time talking about, you know, Saudi Arabia is doing a Chinese yuan deal with China or uh, Brazil is doing a bilateral deal with China and, and, you know, and yuan and rice and there's no dollars involved. But they, and that's the end of the dollars reserve currency. People are not, people do not distinguish between a payment currency and a reserve currency. Mm-hmm. Two different things. Payment currency is anything you're willing to accept or I'm willing to accept, uh, and it's important. And that, that's where the dollar's under attack. Watch what happens in August, the BRICS Plus, they got a 19-member waiting list. They're gonna be uh, more than half the global population, more than half global GDP in a matter of months. Um, they are working on their own payment currency, uh, payment channels, et cetera. Uh, they haven't announced what it is yet, but they're working on it. All these other countries I mentioned doing bilateral deals. Uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization um, is working on an alternate currency. But all those deals are payment currencies. And again, you can use baseball cards if everybody's in on the deal. Reserve currency is different because there actually are no reserve currencies. You know, People's Bank of China doesn't have pallets of $100 bills in the basement. It's a, re- <coughs> a reserve is a security denominated in a currency. So people say 60% of global reserves are in dollars. They're in U.S. Treasury securities denominated in dollars. The key to the reserve currency is the security, not the dollar, although it is denominated in dollars. But just holding on there a second, Jim. So you're saying to diversify, which is obviously you've said gold, you've said cash, particularly in the case of deflation, and you're saying stocks and options. Now, there's a lot of people who would look at things like Bitcoin and would look at digital currencies. Look at Jim's face. <laughs> now, I, right. I, I know you're a big Bitcoin guy, Jim. <laughs> you're a huge fan. Huge fan. of. Could you please explain to people why, particularly this applies to younger men who see these types of cryptocurrencies as a shortcut to wealth and to generate money for themselves. Right. Why this might not be a good idea. Well, uh, sure. I've spent. Uh, I've been dragged into a whole bunch of gold versus Bitcoin bait, debates, and to me, it's like you know, fish versus bicycles. Like it's they're two separate things. Yeah. Um, but when, if I'm going to be the gold side and debate somebody on the Bitcoin side, I'm going to be certain to know more about it than they do. Mm-hmm. I don't want any surprises. So I've actually studied Bitcoin from the beginning. I read uh, Satoshi Nakamoto's paper like less than a year after it came out. I've studied it very closely ever since. Um, and I, I guess I spent 10 years working on the problem. Like, there is no there there. So, but I, I see the price action. I know people who bought Bitcoin at two bucks and sold out at 20,000 and mm-hmm. um, you know, paid their taxes like good citizens and walked away with $20 million. Uh, you know, those, those stories are real. There are also suicides from people who bought Bitcoin at $70,000 and went to 15 and they'd hocked their inventory and they're out of business and, and and commit suicide. So that's the other side of the trade. But yeah, the the the, the profit making stories are real. We can all look at the price action. It was sixty eight thousand dollars in November twenty twenty one. That was a real number. Mm-hmm. Uh, I talked to Mark Saylor. He was he had made about six billion at that point. I think he's he was underwater briefly. He's back up to a billion. He lost five billion when it went down to uh, thirteen thousand. That's rallied recently. I get all that. But but I'm like. 
what is it and why? Um, so I've, I've come up with two explanations. Actually, if I work on an issue for 10 years or so and I solve it, I, I, I move on. I'm like, okay, I got. To, I don't have to think about it anymore because I solved the problem. Um, and uh, so, so here's the thing on, on Bitcoin. The best way to understand it, if I go into you know the Wynn Hotel in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. I put you know five thousand dollars down the roulette table, the croupier gives me a big stack of chips, and I gamble. And I can make money or I could lose money. Uh, I know the the odds and all that. I'm working on a roulette system, so does everybody. But um, you can make or lose money. But let's say you make money, okay? You can't take those chips and walk out on the boulevard and buy dinner. You have to go to the cashier and change them for dollars, mm-hmm. and then you can take your dollars and treat your friends to dinner, whatever you want. Mm-hmm. In other words, there's a portal between crypto world and the and the main banking world or the dollar world or euros or anything else that you have to go through in order to find any utility mm-hmm. in the sense of money. Um, so uh, I've, I've thought of it as a casino chip where the, the crypto world, and Bitcoin, I know Ether and, and Ripple and all these other ones, um, they're the casino. You can go in, put your dollars up, get your chips, gamble, make money or lose money, but you can't go anywhere else. You can't do anything else. You're just in the casino. And if you want to get out of the casino and be back in the real world, you got to go to the cashier. Now, interesting footnote on that. On March uh, 10th, the, uh, this is funny, the FDIC shut down Silicon Valley Bank. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, not to get too far afield, but when they did it, they followed the Brisbane, Australia, November 2014 bail-in rules. Remember, after 2008, what happened in 2008? The Fed bailed out everybody. So Jamie Dimon kept his job. All these guys kept their jobs. They got their bonuses. They didn't lose anything. The stock market went down, but it came back. Um, nobody was held accountable. Nobody went to jail. They all made more money than ever. They kept their bonuses, and the and the taxpayers, you know, your everyday American or everyday uh, uh, you know, a British subject, is sitting there saying, "Wait a second, I financed this, and you guys got rich, and I didn't get anything except my retirement, uh, you know, account sort of blew up." So the elites were aware of that. They said, we can't let that happen again. There will be other financial panics. So in Brisbane, the G20 came up with the bail-in plan. They said, okay, we're not gonna do it with taxpayer money. We can't, the people won't tolerate it. So when an institution fails, here's what happens. Equity gets wiped out. I think I need bankruptcy. Equity gets wiped out. Bondholders get wiped out to the extent there's a hole in the balance sheet. You might get 20 cents on the dollar or whatever. And then we're gonna turn to depositors and if you have an insurance scheme, we're going to pay the insurance, 250,000 in the U.S., I believe it's 100,000 euros um, in the EU. Uh, UK has something similar. We're going to pay that, but that's it. And then we're going to whack the depositors, and they're going to suffer. And not until every, uh, every uh, uh, creditor, depositor, whatever has been hit will we even think about using taxpayer money. So that's the bail-in. You as a depositor are bailed into saving the institution as opposed to a government bailout. Well, there were no major failures between 2014 and, and 2023. So here we are, March 10th, 2023. The FDIC gets out the bail-in playbook and says, okay, uh, equity's gone. Uh, uh, insured deposits are being paid, 250 Your money will be good Monday morning, no problem. And all you other depositors, you $140 billion of depositors, you're wiped out. Wow. They didn't say we're freezing your accounts or we'll get, you know, they said you're gone. And... Um, they gave them a receivership certificate because the, the company was technically put into receivership. You got a receivership certificate. Um, what was it worth? No idea. When will I get cash? We're working on it. We'll sell the assets and we'll pay you as and when we get proceeds. We'll pay you. But we don't know when. And the RTC in 1990, same kind of deal, um, took two years. I thought they did a good job. I was doing deals with the RTC. We were sitting on boxes because their furniture hadn't arrived yet. But they were, they were wheeling a deal and trying to get the stuff out the door. Well... All the billionaire crybabies spent the weekend banging on the White House door saying, you know, you can't do this. This is entrepreneurs over Silicon Valley. This is their startup capital. They can't meet payroll. They can't pay the rent. You know, you're going to shut down technology, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you can't do this, basically. So um, the first announcement was 6 o'clock Friday. At 6 p.m. on uh, Sunday, the 12th, the FDIC and the Fed came out with a statement and said, just kidding. All the deposits are good. Unlimited amounts. I know a guy was moving eight billion out of it. He said he told me he said we put the wire instructions on Thursday, but from Thursday to Sunday we didn't know where the money was, and nobody mm-hmm. did. But it, it came through. Um, 
One of the crypto exchanges had three billion, and uh, um, I think the, the Circle, uh, the one that backs uh, uh, one of the uh, stable coins, they had three billion. But their customers, they had Cisco, uh, Roku, um, uh, Etsy. Uh, they had a ton of big names in there. And then the whole startup thing was a bit of a fraud because, first of all, most startups fail anyway. So you were just kind of accelerating the timeline. But um, it was a climate bank. And that's why the White House caved because these were not new apps or new, you know, cryptocurrencies or things that maybe make life a little bit uh, simpler. It was all climate change. They were working on battery technology, wind turbines, um, you know, battery chemistry, uh, carbon capture, et cetera. There is no climate crisis. That's, that's made up uh, to, you know, we're on a separate agenda of world control. Um, but that's who was in it. And of course, if you're at the White House, the greener scam is your number one priority. So that's why they got bailed out. So, so they just took the bail-in thing and tore it up, threw it away, uh, insured all the depositors. They did more than that. They, they, the Fed created a facility. They would take every underwater bond in the country, if you're a member bank, and give you par. So if your bond's worth 80, they'll give you 100. I wouldn't mind getting in on that deal you know, for one year at low interest, and I'm sure they'll extend it when the year's up. So that's, that's kind of the world um, we're living in today, and then people don't know about if their deposits are insured or not. You know, it depends if your bank's systemically important, according to Janet Yellen, and that's undefined. Right. Uh, I was going to uh, talk about supply chains, but you did mention the, the, the non-existent climate crisis mm -hmm. and that it's, it's a ploy for world control. And this is what I, we hear this argument from people a lot. And you, you and I had a few messages about my Oxford speech that so you understand how I feel about, you know, if we're, if we're being told that, that, you know, carbon is the problem, why are we doing things that don't seem to really do anything about that? So, right. so I get what you're saying. But I always get wary when people get into the sort of like, there's a, a group of people who secretly have an agenda. Uh, now, we see with the Davos people, whatever, they all believe this stuff and they all think it's important. And, and because they think it's important, they think uh, a global problem requires global solutions. Correct. But are you saying that these aren't just a bunch of, you know, slightly deluded, well-intentioned people, but actually they don't believe the thing that they're saying in the first place? Some of them do. The less intelligent ones do. Um, you know, the John Currys and the Al Gores and... Uh, um, you know, then you got some true believers, uh, you know, Jillian Ted, I've, you know, been knocked heads with her a few times um, at the Financial Times. Um, but some of them do, but the, the vast majority of Americans, and I would say people, you know, Western Europe, uh, maybe even more so, who buy into this, you ask them a simple question, like, hey, what percentage of the atmosphere is CO2? I have no idea. Mm. Um, do you know that CO2, the main reason it's around is plant food? If you get rid of CO2, all the plants will die and we'll start it. No, didn't think of that. Uh, it's poison, really. I just exhaled some CO2, sorry. I didn't mean to poison the room. I mean, they, they, these people don't know anything about chemistry. They don't know anything about physics. They don't know anything about climate. I mean, I'm, I am a complexity theorist. My um, ability to kind of understand capital markets is based on applying complexity theory if over here in the physics world bringing it to capital markets. They are complex, dynamic systems, non-parel, so, and it works beautifully. But probably the most complex system you can think of is, is the climate, is climatology. Mm -hmm. And so there's kind of a reign of terror going on in that world where, you know, this uh, guy at Penn State, you know, he's, his big thing uh, is just to sue you if you mention his name. Uh, but, well, let's uh, not mention his name. <laughs> We're not as rich as you remember, Jim. <laughs> well, he, yeah, he's, well, he's backed by the state of Pennsylvania. So, um, but we're not, Jim. Exactly. <laughs> so, but, but, but my point is, um, my point is, they will, um, so you're an up-and-coming climate researcher or a physicist, whatever. You will not get tenure. You will not get published. You will not get research grants. If you deviate in any way from the narrative, which is that CO2 is poison, methane is poison, there's... Um, you know, if, if global temperatures go up, uh, whatever, what is it, 1.5 centigrade before a certain time, the oceans are going to rise, New York City subways will be flooded. None of that is true. Um, there is no evidence that shows conclusively that CO2 has anything to do with global warming, number one. Uh, you can speculate on it. It is, it is a greenhouse gas. It does trap um, uh, heat. But the system is so complex that other factors come into play that tend to, uh, that tend to reverse, mm -hmm. have recursive functions that tend to reverse whatever it was that started. 
The causes of climate change are actually very well known. Sun cycles, volcanoes, ocean currents, um, the location of the jet stream. Um, there, are, there are a set of factors, you know, La Nina, El Nino, uh, that, uh, you know, oceanic subduction where, you know, cold, it warms more, warm, saltier water from the Gulf Stream gets up near Iceland and uh, it's, it goes under the fresh water, but sometimes it doesn't and then that'll make it warmer there and cause the jet stream to dip and be colder in Europe, et cetera. The medieval warm period from around uh, about the 10th century to the, uh, the 12th century, they were growing grapes in Greenland. I mean, they had farms, they had colonies, and then today they're all under ice. The Little Ice Age, which wasn't a true ice age, but it was an intense period of global cooling, the Thames was frozen. They didn't need the bridges. You could walk across the Thames uh, on ice, and they had what they call frost fairs in early uh, 17th century London, where they, the merchants would set up their booths on the on the Thames, and people would go out ice skating, and you could go shopping. That's how cold it was, and that that lasted for several hundred years. So, of course, the climate changes. You know, and say, you know, you're a climate denier. I'm not a climate denier. Climate change all the time. I just deny bad science. I deny your hoax. I deny your lies. That's yeah. All right. Well, this video is not demonetized, thanks <laughs> to you, Jim. But but you know, it is. It's weird because uh, matters of science. You, you could be completely wrong about this, right? I'm not saying you are, but you could be. And we should still be able to have the conversation. But if it does feel like to me, I feel it inside of hosting the show right now. I feel like I have to sort of acknowledge the fact that you've expressed a controversial view that goes against what we all are supposed no, to believe. I, I, have, I have not expressed an opinion. Everything I've said is based on science. I can <clears throat> be happy to, <clears throat> pardon me, deluge you with the, with the peer-reviewed papers. What's interesting is that this, the... They're true experts. I'm talking about you know, Princeton physicists, University of Colorado, by the way. They're very one of the top research universities in this field. The guys and women, mostly guys, who are retired, who aren't worried about all the things, they're writing papers that completely refute the climate change narrative. I should, I should call it the global warming CO2 narrative because everyone, anyone who knows anything knows that climate change. I, right. I lived 10 years on Long Island. Let's not spend too long on this okay, because sure. I, I just wanted to, to point that out. But the thing I really wanted to talk about as well, uh, James, is one of the things that defined the politics of the last eight to nine years, I would argue, is globalization yep. and the impact that that process had on particular subsets of our population. Correct. The, the Brexit and Trump votes had a lot to do with that. Yes. And... Part of the way that that impacted politics was that, this is the argument, I don't know whether you agree with it, but people would argue globalization was a net good in terms of making everybody richer around the world. However, it had, you don't agree with this part. Well, let me, let me get the rest of the of argument course, now. Yeah. However, it had a very bad impact on certain groups of the population mm -hmm. in certain countries. Mm -hmm. In the West, that meant that basically lower skilled people lost their jobs and manufacturing jobs in particular. And around the world, it meant you know people working in terrible conditions and blah blah blah. And that's not may still have been an improvement on what they were doing before, but nonetheless, right? That's right. right? Yeah. Now, what we saw as a result of COVID uh, and other things to do with the pandemic, and now the war in Ukraine, the world is going through a process of deglobalization. Correct. And this is what you this is what you call broken supply chains. That's basically what that means, right? Yeah, the broken supply chains are part of it, and yeah. that's going to continue. And we are uh, deglobalizing or decoupling is another word, but yeah. it's, it's the same thing. We're busting up globalization. So does that? My question to you is: Does that not mean that we're all going to, well, except for the super rich, you're always going to get richer? Yeah. It seems like we're all going to get poorer now. Well. When you, going back to what you said a yeah. couple minutes ago, Constantine, where, you know, whether they're winners or losers, et cetera, and of course they were, uh, we're all better off. That's true on average. Averages hide more than they reveal. Mm -hmm. You have to get behind the average and look at the degree distribution. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so the old joke, I hate to use cliches, but I'll use one now, you know, 20 guys are in a bar and Bill Gates walks in and on average, everyone's a billionaire. Right. Well, <laughs> you're actually the same guy you were before he mm -hmm. walked in the bar. So, um, you can't well, you can do whatever you want, but to me, it's not meaningful to talk about uh, higher average income, higher per capita income without looking at the degree distribution, the Gini coefficient, the income inequality. That's where it matters. Because I spent a lot of time in China. Um, the, the sliver of the population who are multi-billionaires um, is, 
brings up the average. But so, yeah, okay, people left the farm, they went to the city. Uh, it's still rough, but it's better than where they were, and they are better off. I don't, I don't dispute that. But you can't look at the average numbers or the global numbers uh, without understanding the fact that people are a little bit better off, some of them. Um, but the, the income... Uh, the income inequality is extreme, and it's also extreme. The U.S. Uh, Gini coefficient is a measure of income inequality, so a higher number means you're more uh, unequal. Uh, the U.S. just passed Mexico. I mean, Mexico is always, the, for Americans at least, so this, they, you got oligarchs in Mexico. Well, we got them here, and we got plenty of them. So um, first of all, uh, real incomes of uh, Americans have been declining for um, uh, 30 years. Uh, for for working class Americans, mm. now the super rich, yeah, they're they're off the charts. Uh, so the averages still look bad, by the way, but they don't look um, as bad as the everyday American who has been in a losing race for thirty years. Uh, but yes, yeah, a small sliver, they're they're much better off, uh, and they're the ones with the biggest interest in keeping the game going. But I also I also disagree, Constantine, when you said um, you know talk about secret cabal, and you didn't quite put it that way, but that was sort of. Um, you know, aren't we in the conspiracy theory land? Mm. It's, not, it's not a secret. I can name them all. Uh, you know, it's it's Christine Lagarde and Johnny Owen and uh, Tim Geithner and Mark Carney, probably the number one villain in the whole thing. Um, uh, you know, the, the you know, Tim Cook, Jeff Bezos, you know, the heads of the major tech companies, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, the Davos crowd, but, but more than that. Uh, and they totally get it. They, these are, you know, these are smart people in addition to being immensely powerful. But they want this because... Sorry, Jim, what do they want? Well, they, well what they want, and, and I talk about this in my book, The Road to Ruin, uh, mm -hmm. 2016 book, The Road to Ruin. I explain this in, in great detail. Problem with being 10 years ahead of your time is that when it comes true, everyone forgot you said it. But pick up that book and you'll, you'll get the blueprint. Um, look, what they want in a nutshell is world government, world money, world taxation with a small group in control. That's what they want. The question is, how do you get there? The answer is, and, and Karl Popper explained this uh, 70, 80 years ago, and George Soros adopted it. Um, it's called uh, piecemeal social engineering. It's like slicing a salami. salami. Don't take the whole thing at once. Just slice, 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 slice. Mm -hmm. People don't notice, or um, give yourself enough time, and you'll eventually get to where you want to be. So the euro was a big step in that direction, because uh, it no more lira, no more drachma, no more pesetas, uh, French francs. Um, and now, you know, NAFTA it was a big step in that direction. No more, you know, no more borders. So they want to eliminate borders. They want to eliminate different kinds of money. The, uh, the central bank digital currencies, even if you do it, you know, this is CBDC euro. It's not, a, it's not a cryptocurrency, by the way. It's the message traffic is encrypted. It is digital but it's not a cryptocurrency because there's a single ledger controlled by the government and they can see what you're doing. This is the ultimate um, social control tool. Where are they traveling? How are they traveling? What are they eating? What are they consuming on the platform? So individual carbon footprint tracker. Hmm. Stay tuned, we don't have it operational yet, but this is something that we're working on. So right now I'm in an airport, I wanna, candy bar, I go to a retail place, I buy a candy bar, I use a credit card. The merchant, how does he get paid? Well, he sells that receivable to somebody called a merchant acquirer. These are factoring businesses that buy up hundreds of millions of dollars mm -hmm. of receivables, so the merchant gets paid. Uh, then the merchant acquirer delivers it to MasterCard or Visa, he gets paid MasterCard Visa, distributes it to the issuing banks, they get paid, the bank sends me a bill and I pay the bank. Okay, why do we need five intermediaries and 3% discount, 3% of fees for me to buy a candy bar. Uh, so the, the central bank digital currency, where you have a single ledger, you know, QR code on your, on your smartphone, no intermediaries. Um, it's better, faster, cheaper. And that's true, that's actually true. They always sell stuff by giving you the benefits. They never tell you the other side. The other side is, um, oh, now I'm in a bookstore. I buy the new book by Ron DeSantis, you know? Well, right now that's between me and MasterCard. You need, under the Fourth Amendment, you need a subpoena and a warrant to get that information from MasterCard, and if you're not a wrongdoer, they shouldn't be able to get it. But with a central bank digital currency, the, uh, the government knows it. They know I bought a book by Ron DeSantis. They know I gave a contribution to Elise Stefanik, who's the number three Republican in the House. Um, 
They know I, I travel to, you know, Florida, you know, red state, whatever. I mean, and then you combine what I just said, that ledger, with um, artificial intelligence, with the GPT, uh, generative uh, pre-trained uh, transformer technology, you got a target on your back. With that information, which the government will now have firsthand, they're not stealing it, you're giving it to them by using their central bank digital currency, combined with um, uh, GPT, uh, artificial intelligence technology, they can develop a profile of you and go back to um, Joe Biden's speech in Independence Hall in September uh, 2022, just ahead of the midterm elections, are directed by Lenny Reifenstahl. I mean, might as well have been, right? Every, everything that they use that she invented at the Nuremberg rallies, you know, putting the leader up on a pedestal. She was the one who dug trenches to put the cameras in the trenches so you'd be looking up even higher at the leader, the vertical lights, the blood red backdrop. Everything about that, the art direction of that speech was right out of Nuremberg. And, you know, she was a great art director um, and, and more. Uh, so, but what did Biden say? He said half the country are enemies of the people. He said, not all you Republicans, but you MAGA Republicans, well, that's the majority of the Republican Party, um, are enemies of the people. So now you got Biden telling you you're an enemy of the state. You got the government knowing, actually, it's a kind of thought control because I, using inference, I can tell by what you're reading, what you're buying, what you're attending, et cetera, kind of what you're thinking. Uh, combine that with uh, artificial intelligence and GPT technology, and now you got a target on your back and expect to knock on the door from the FBI goon squads. So that, that's- I'm off so to buy a copy of White Fragility, <laughs> just to yeah, balance that's things up. Going, that's where we're going with this. Yeah, but so look, so that being the case, but let's look at it in practical terms. So you've got the dollar, which is pretty much a digital currency, and so is a sterling as where we are now. Correct. So that's a digital currency. We've got a CBDC. What is the difference? Is the CD, CBDC, is that going to be a new currency or is that just going to be the dollar? And if it is the dollar, how are they going to transition from everybody using this system to everybody using CBDC? Well, the transition is already underway. There's a new... That's uh, comforting, Jim. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> You know, and, and you know, when you frame a question like, you know, can we bring this down to the everyday American or Brit or citizen around the world? I completely agree with that. That's a good approach. But what I am talking to that audience. I'm talking to you, mm -hmm. but I, I understand the audience. I'm saying if the elites are working on uh, something that would make George Orwell blush, which it would, that is something that affects everyday people. You ought to mm -hmm. pay attention to that. Um, and the difference, um, Francis, is... A central bank digital currency is not a new currency. It's still a dollar, it's still a euro, it's still a yuan or whatever. It's a new payment channel. But here are the differences. Number one, here's the biggest one. The government controls the ledger. Not MasterCard, mm -hmm. not Visa. The government controls the ledger. And right now, see, MasterCard has uh, product codes. Uh, and so, um, uh, you know, there's like, it's probably like books get thrown in with like, you know, retail or, you know, consumer durables. They're, they're kind of broad categories. They do sort them that way and they give you your own statement and all that. But interestingly, MasterCard recently came up with a separate code for um, guns, guns and ammunition. Now, it used to be sporting goods. Mm -hmm. You know, you wouldn't necessarily know if I bought a fly rod or an AR-15. But now you will, because they, they break it out. And the, I was at the government's behest, and that's the beginning. But you'll see that in extreme form with central bank digital currency. Now they got so they're going to know what you're buying. Correct. Uh, but yes, but from that, with artificial intelligence, they can know what you're thinking. And that's mm -hmm. really my point. Um, but um, uh, you know, combine that with uh, you know, the, you know, these other, uh, other developments that are taking place. But the Fed is rolling out a system called uh, FedNow. Uh, it's going into kind of testing uh, in a few months, actually, I think this summer. Uh, they've announced this. And uh, this is the inner bank version. So it's not going to be on my smartphone or it's not going to be at retail yet. But they want to make sure it all works between the banks, the inner bank payment system. And then they'll kind of roll it up. But they also got to get rid of cash because you say, all right, I don't like this system. I don't want them knowing what books I'm buying, whatever. Um, I'm going to use cash. Well, you got to get rid of cash. You're seeing that already. How many places have you seen no cash accepted? So, so they'll do that. Um, and then the other thing they got to whack is Bitcoin. Now, I'm not a Bitcoin fan, but you know it is what it is. If people want it, knock yourself out. But that's not good enough for the government. So going back to our banking crisis discussion, on the same night, um, Sunday, March 12th, when they um, said all the deposits are protected, they also waxed Signature Bank. They took out a bank called Signature Bank. 
And Barney, Barney Frank was on the board of directors, as in Dodd-Frank, you know, so uh, that didn't do him a lot of good. But Frank said, and he was correct, he said, if you had just let us go until Monday, when the Fed announced Sunday night that they would buy all the underwater bonds at par, we would have been fine. Why did you take us out? Why would we be any different than any other medium-sized bank, which were all in the same condition? The answer is, they had a portal, going back to my casino metaphor, to the crypto world called Signet. And they were very active in converting cryptocurrencies into mainstream banking. They were regular bank, member bank, FDIC insured, but they had this portal between the banking world and the crypto world, and that's what they were that's what they wanted to kill. And that's why they took out Signature Bank and didn't give them one day's grace to to survive. So they gotta whack Bitcoin, they gotta whack cash. And I always say if you want to slaughter cattle, you gotta herd them into the slaughterhouse, get them in a pen and get them in a chute. Well, you gotta get rid of cash and crypto, herd everybody into the digital world, and then you can whack them politically, and that's what's going on. Okay. Jim, uh, we've got to wrap up, but before we do our final question and our locals question, there is an obvious question here, which is if you're an ordinary person listening to this and you haven't jumped out of a window yet, <laughs> what do you do about Before it? Uh, well, a couple of things. And this gets back, I guess I digressed a little bit when I said have gold in your portfolio. Um, and going back further to the reserve currency thing, there is... There is no alternative to the dollar as a reserve currency in terms of bond markets. There's no bond market with all you know derivatives and futures and options and settlement and clearance and rule of law and all that stuff. But there is an alternative called gold. So gold will be where countries go and it should be where investors go. Uh, follow the money, as they say. And uh, uh, central banks have been net buyers for the last 13 years. So they're about the best informed players you can imagine. So I'd have some gold for that reason, because not because it's shiny and pretty, but because um, central banks are, are huge net buyers and it is the alternative to the dollar. There's no other currency that comes close, but gold does. So that's the reason to have, have some gold in your portfolio. And also this loss of confidence in the dollar that we've been talking about, independent of what other countries are doing, um, it'll, it'll preserve wealth. It'll, it'll be fine the next day, uh, you know, if there's some kind of panic or collapse or revulsion against the dollar, that's how currencies die, your gold will hold up just fine. And b before we go, do you think they use the pandemic to get rid of cash? They use the pandemic for a lot of things, and uh, we, we'll need another hour on that. Maybe you can invite me back. Uh, we'll do that. In, yeah. in due course. But the pandemic was a dry run for the climate change panic that they're trying to promote. So... My biggest shock at the pandemic when they said, masks don't work, the research is clear. By the way, th these are not opinions. I'm happy to give anybody 50 peer-reviewed academic papers that back this up. Masks don't work, lockdowns don't work. Um, the guy who uh, won the Presidential Medal of Freedom for eradicating smallpox wrote a paper in 2006, D.A. Henderson, greatest uh, virologist in history, said lockdowns don't work. But of course, that was ignored by Anthony Fauci because he had to cover up his own crimes in Wuhan. Um, but uh, so there's a lot of truth bombs being dropped in this episode. <laughs> uh, so but, but we we know all this. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm just well, but, but my my point is, um, it was a really good job. You know what shocked me the most? Not that the government would lie, not that they would use fear, but that people would go along with it. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's what same. shocked me. I was the same. That's what shocked me. So you you're wearing a mask. You a cop had to basically accost me to get me to put a mask on, and then as soon as he was gone, I would pull it down under my chin. I never wore a mask. Um, best treatment for COVID was to get outside, get some sunshine, fresh air, maybe a little vitamin C, exercise, lose a few pounds. That was the right therapy, and we did the opposite. Put a mask on, stay inside. So, so as a dry run, it worked. Fear works, and people are more obedient than I would have expected. And so if those two things are true, then you run the, you run the climate change playbook, and you, uh, you get world control. Well, uh, I mean, the fact that people responded the way they did was absolutely terrifying. Yeah. And that's what I always say to people, people, you know, people who complained about the COVID authoritarianism. They're like, oh, yeah, the government went all tyrannical and, and it wasn't Democrat. I was like, no, no, the government was looking at the people losing their shit and giving them what they wanted. Right. Now, in fairness to the people, they were terrified into it by the government and the yeah, media, yeah. right? But you put all that together and the people willingly give away their freedom. Correct. And, and that, that is terrifying. Yeah. Uh, and on that happy note, uh, Jim, uh, as always, thank you for coming on the show. Obviously, we recommend everybody check out Sold Out, among your many other books. And we always end with the same question. Which is, what's the one thing we're not talking about as a society that we really should be? 
Um, we're, we can actually look, everyone's like AI is the end and ChatGPT is the end of the um, search engine, which it is. That's why Google is in such a panic and they're rolling out mm -hmm. their AI. Um, but we can look beyond AI to the end of AI. AI is the end of the search engine. We can look beyond that to AI. And the reason I'll, I'll, I promise to be brief, we're coming out the end of a 2,300 year old tunnel. Plato was a transitional figure between the Homeric society. Homer never wrote a word. It was all, he, he composed it orally, it was recited orally, that's how people learned it. It wasn't a poem in their minds, it was the encyclopedia of Greek behavior. Um, Plato started writing things down using the phonetic alphabet, which was brand new at the time. And we've been using phonetic alphabet ever since. We're now coming out the other end of that into an oral, acoustic, tactile society. And everyone likes emojis, they think they're cute. Emojis are hieroglyphics. They're not phonic. Um, and, and the same thing with, you know, universal signs, mm. hip hop, I'm not dinging hip hop, I'm just saying it's all acoustic. And kids are getting an education, they're absorbing it electronically, they're not sitting in class, they should be, but they're not. So um, that, what does that mean for the whole computer world where we just taught, chat GPT trains a computer to read a billion pages of text. What does it mean when we don't read anymore? What does it mean? It means we're not ingesting it. We're not ingesting information well, properly. The, the, well, we're ingesting it in an electronic way. You know, Marshall McLuhan said when the first Sputnik went up, the entire world became a human artifact because we wrapped it in aluminum foil. Um, so some of this is just kind of updating McLuhan for the chat GPT world. But um, it's, uh, it, it, he came up with the phrase global village. And everyone says, oh, it sounds kind of nice, global village. You know, he says, no, villages are brutal, violent, and tribal. <laughs> So he, it was an accurate description, good choice of words. But he said, don't think that means warm and fuzzy. It's we are becoming more tribal. Mm -hmm. And that's what acoustic environment, electronic environment is doing to us. And we don't know it. It's, um, uh, you know, I always say the, the fish, the, we don't know who um, discovered water, but we're sure it was not the fish because the fish is in the water. You have to take the fish out of the water. It's like, oh, where's the water? Well, we're in this electronic environment. Mm -hmm. We don't even know it. Yeah. We can do another hour on that as well. And I have no doubt that we will. Jim, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. And that's why you should head over to Locals. Join us there for the bonus questions that you've already submitted that only you will get to see the answers to. Take care and see you soon. Will you be putting money on Trump to win the election next oh, year? Oh, what a right. question. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.